0: I'll say, bless the Lord, if you'll say, oh, my soul, bless the Lord, bless his holy name. Well, good evening. I'm Chris. I'm the pastor here at Kairos. It's our honest and unique attempt to connect to God and each other, and happy Valentine's Day. Let's pause right there for a second. There's usually three responses to that. One is anger. Shut up, dude. I don't want to hear about it. That's okay, bitter single person. We see you, and we still love you. Second is, eh, which means you're just hiding that you're a bitter single person. I see right through it. Or you're like, yes, finally. <laughs> or, oh, no, I forgot. Um, so if that's you, there are counselors waiting to pray with you after the service. And tell you where Walgreens is, um, which is where I was last night with a bunch of desperate souls. That's just not that good. Good thing I'm this good looking. My wife overlooks a lot of other things. That was not a joke. No one wants to be unloved today. And I think this day is a reminder for some of us at how grateful we should be if we're in a relationship where we're experiencing that. It reminds us to truly be grateful, to be appreciative, to be accountable, to be present, and to recognize that love is a fragile and fabulous thing. And how can we create an environment that cultivates it and nourishes it? For some of us, it's a day when we're going, hey, we are eagerly anticipating the future Because although I may not be in a relationship right now, the future is ripe with possibilities and preparation. And even where you're at right now, you're making sure you're becoming the type of person God's called you to be so that you can be ready when that person shows up. You take great care to heed the words of Scripture, do not awaken love until it so desires, and When it awakens and when it sows desires, you're going to make sure there's plenty of oil in your lamp when that bridegroom comes. Hashtag biblical womanhood, right? (laughs) But there's some of you who this is a day that, if you're honest, evokes jealousy and anger in you at what others have and what you do not. And for some of you, Anger would be too much of a stretch because you've resigned yourself to disappointment, that that time and that chance has passed you by, and that no one will ever call you their beloved. And rather than read the text tonight, I think there, first off, I think there's something that you would read that your soul would resonate more with, and that is the opening line to Shakespeare's Richard III. Now is the winter of our discontentment. I've often used that line because it's so powerful and provocative, but in preparing for this talk, I was, went back and researched the actual soliloquy from Shakespeare's play. And any of you Shakespearean actors in here may know this better than I do, but what's interesting. It's actually very paradoxical what comes after that. Richard III goes on to say, after he says famously, now is the winter of our discontent, that summer has come, the clouds has lifted, and his family and his fortunes changed. Like all of a sudden, there's this great series of events that leads to his family being in power and prominence, yet he cannot experience joy or satisfaction because there is no option on the horizon for a romantic relationship. And he uses incredible words to describe the fact and the reason why he thinks he's unloved. He says, I'm deformed and unfinished, sent before my time. I'm lamely and unfashionable that when I stop, even dogs bark at me. I want you to listen to these three lines, the conclusion that he comes to because of the season of his life that he's in. He does not see a relationship on the horizon, here's the decision that that character makes. And therefore, since I cannot prove a lover to entertain these farewell spoken days, I am determined to prove a villain. I know what it's like in my heart to prove a villain. I know what it's like to be in a season of my life when I felt so unloved and unlovely that I was going to move towards villainous ways to get my needs met. I know what it's like even in the midst of having friends and family and a God who are committed and who love me, to have villainy in my eyes and anytime someone tries to speak life or hope or redemption into me, I just seize back, you have no idea what I'm going through. And I know what it's like to prove a villain simply because I was just Impatient. And I didn't want to wait on the Lord's timing. I didn't want to concentrate on who I was becoming. I just didn't want to be alone. For those of you who find yourself in a similar season in this room tonight, I want you to give me an opportunity to prove to you from God's word that you don't have to prove to be the villain, even if you're in the winter of your discontentment. So we're gonna be reading out of Song of Songs. We'll turn there in just a second, but this text will need a little bit of setup. Um, Song of Psalms is a poem and a play of other sorts. Maybe Shakespeare read it and was familiar with it. It was written by or for King Solomon on the occasion of his royal wedding. Um, And it's about two star-crossed lovers who perhaps are being discouraged from actually proceeding with their relationships, maybe because of their social inequality or their racial differences. But usually we know how that goes, that doesn't work. It just makes them more committed and more willing to wait for one another. And so this entire book in the Bible is saturated with sensual language and spiritual language. Now, uh, it may be uncomfortable for some of you to use those same words in the same sentence that God's actually cares about our sexuality and our spirituality. Um, I was sitting in a counselor's office one time in my early 30s, and my counselor said to me, Chris, you realize that your sexuality and your spirituality are intrinsically tied to one another. And I'm like, huh, what does that mean? And that's part of the reason I was there. Um, <laughs> but let's just all be honest after that nervous laughter that when it, it's odd, it, we all know that we're in an over-sexualized culture. And it becomes increasingly more difficult to protect and preserve the sexuality that God has given you. But for some reason, when we actually step inside of church and we actually talk about our sexuality and our spirituality, all of a sudden, everyone gets really, really nervous. Now, you may have just cause for that. You may have had somebody speak in a way that was not affirming or condemning or just did not help when they were trying to discuss that. Or you may have been in church environments where, hey, we don't talk about that stuff. And there's sort of this repressive shame that comes around the fact that God has designed us as human beings in his image with sexuality in mind. this, This guy will say it better than me. I love Philip Yancey's quote. Listen to what he says. I know of no greater failure among Christians... Than presenting a persuasive approach to sexuality. Outside of the church, people think of God as the great spoil sport of human sexuality, not its inventor. So, with that in mind, we're not going to shy away from reading a book in the Bible that Jewish boys were not allowed to read until the age of 13 because of its content. So, tonight's PG um, 13. Just wah, wah, wah. <laughs> come on guys, work with me. <laughs> but my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will bring healing and wholeness to both our spirituality and the way we view our sexuality tonight. And that we'll allow the Word of God to speak directly to it. We're going to bring the whole person to the whole gospel. And there are some sections here that I'm not even going to read that are going to even be more saucy. So you may want to get your Bible reading group in the next couple weeks. Hey, let's finish that. That was a great book, all right? I got to find out what happens. Um, But (laughs) My hope is that this text will be a prism that gathers the light of God's love and then arranges it in the different colors of his covenant commitment to you and I so that we can see a little bit more clearly the technicolor love that God has through us, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So we're in Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon, whichever you prefer, potato, potato. Uh, We'll be in chapter two, starting in verse eight. The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills, My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. That's slightly creepy, unless you actually want him to be there. So let's just recognize that awkwardness in the text. (laughs) But it gets better. My (laughs) My beloved speaks to me and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, winter is past, and the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth, and the time of singing is come. And the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs, and the vines are in blossom, and they give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. I'll say the word of the Lord if you'll say thanks be to God. The word of the Lord. What words do you use to describe God's love for you? What words come floating up from your heart and spilling out of your lips naturally when you think of the reckless, redemptive, redeeming love that God has for you? What do you use to describe that wonderful and mysterious pursuit of our loyal lover, Jesus, to describe how he pursues you? I wonder if one of the things that the poet and the author is not trying to do here is broaden our vocabulary so we can broaden our experiences. And better yet, what are the natural words that spill out of your mouth to describe your love for God? Does romantic language get offensive for you? Does it feel tawdry? Does it feel sophomoric? Or are you at a place with your intimacy with Jesus, so convinced of your guilt and so smitten by his grace that you need to broaden your vocabulary to describe who he is and what he's done for you and how you want to respond to him? So again, this poet's probably a shepherd or really familiar with nature or some granola-loving dude, right? He uses all these words surrounding in nature, this vitality, it's sensuality, it's words like winter is past, Rain is gone. Flowers are blooming. Birds are singing. Vines are ripe. You can smell it in the air. The bridegroom says, arise, my love, my beautiful one. Come away with me. Spring has a way of eliciting some of those emotions and affections within us. I was a college pastor in Tuscaloosa for seven years, and here's what we knew in college rhythms that the second spring break hits until the end of the semester, you will have lots of counseling appointments for bad relationship decisions. I don't know what, how, how to get that verified in the Journal of Psychology. I don't know if it's because it's spring and everyone's losing their minds. The closer you get to finals, people just make really, really poor decisions underneath the weight of responsibility of an adult. Um, and you just know, just get ready. It's going to happen. I don't think that the author here has heard of spring break, but I do think he's heard of the fact that when the seasons change, something comes alive in us. There's something woven into our DNA to be connected to the changing of the seasons, and this is what he's using to describe their love. I love that phrase, and it's the one I want us to to just continue to saturate in tonight. Arise, my love, my beautiful one come away with me. Do you hear the words of Jesus echoed in that phrase in his life and his ministry? If you think about Jesus's words and his works, you could almost put that phrase or that banner over every section of scripture when Jesus was here on earth. Jesus is constantly inviting us out of sin and slavery, out of death and despair into life and liberty through the power of his Holy Spirit. It is the meta theme of scripture that out of death life can truly come, that we can hear the voice of Jesus on behalf of the Father who has made a way because of his life, death, and resurrection. Arise, my love, my beautiful one. Come away with me, or as he would say, follow me and you're gonna discover this wild and mysterious courtship called discipleship where we'll later discover that he's gonna present us in front of his father as the church, as the bride of Christ, without spot or blemish, but that we should be holy and perfect in his sight. I, I hear it all over the stories. I hear it dramatically demonstrated Once again, when he stands outside of his friend Lazarus' tomb, and he says, Lazarus, come forth. Arise, my love, my beautiful one. Come forth from death into life. I can hear it in Mark chapter 5, when there's a little girl who's just died, and a father is weeping in the background, begging Jesus to do something about it, and he whispers to Lethia Kuhn, little girl, I say to you, get up and Jesus takes her by the hand and she's able to stand and immediately the father's tears recess into raucous laughter and I'd like to imagine that immediately she begins to dance to the rhythm of resurrection that she hears in her savior's voice arise my love my beautiful one and come away out of death and into life and we hear it in John chapter 5 when Jesus comes to the pool of Shalom, and there's a bunch of invalids surrounding the pool in their desperation and in their affliction, hoping beyond hope that they can make it to the water's edge when the water is stirred to find the possibility of healing. And there's one who's given up hope, and he's on his mat of misery and desperation. And Jesus leans down and says, Get up, take your mat and go home. You don't belong here. And immediately, he stands up and takes his mat because Jesus is calling him out of death and into life. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away with me. I wonder if some of us need to hear that tonight to realize that even in the winter of our discontentment, spring has sprung. And that if you can hear the voice of your Savior singing over your life, you are loved and you are altogether lovely. I love that phrase. Uh, I think it's an adaptation of what this scripture says. But what I'll never forget is the first time I heard it. You are loved and you are lovely. We're in the hospital and uh, Boggs is sitting there with his sick wife and a sick child who's unborn. And we've been in now the hospital a couple times and had a lot of scares with baby Nash. And we're praying for the Lord for hope and healing. We're remembering all the scriptures that we can. We're leaning in and asking the Holy Spirit to do the miraculous. And just felt a prompting from the Holy Spirit. I said, "Bogs, will you sing over your unborn son as an act of worship and prayer?" And through tears and a cracked voice, I saw him whisper over his wife's tummy, you are loved and you are altogether lovely. And I was arrested at what a picture of the father's love that he has for us. That even in the winter of our discontentment, even when we've decided to prove the villain, his words can still arrest us and find us and hunt us down. Oh, son, you are loved and you are altogether lovely. What are you doing here? Get up, take your mat, get off your mat of misery and desperation and shame and follow me. Or maybe we find ourselves as the little girl who longs to hear our father whisper, Little girl, I say to you, get up. Throw off the sin that so easily entangles you and run with endurance the race marked out before you. Do you not know that I make all things beautiful in their time? Or maybe we need to hear the words that came to Lazarus come to us again. Come forth. And find through the power of the Holy Spirit that our feeble arms and our weak knees are strengthened enough to tear through those grave clothes that have bound us in our brokenness for far too long and have defined us for far too long. And we discover the wonderful joy of who God is calling us to be. And that his love is here and available for us right here and right now. And if that's you, if you're here tonight and you're able to hear the Lord speak to you, arise my love, my beautiful one, come away. There's only one appropriate response and it's two verses later. And it says, my beloved is mine and I am his because you are loved and you are altogether lovely. You don't have to prove the villain, but you can receive the Father's love for you through Jesus Christ our Lord. Yeah, I, I think Jesus is telling me that's it, be quiet. So I just wanna leave that in front of you. I wanna give you a little bit of extra time to process that. I'm going to ask our worship ministers to come up. Um, and we usually take 120 seconds of listening prayer to try to listen and dialogue with the Father. We might give you a little bit of extra time tonight. Um, but here's, here's some prompting questions in your conversation with Jesus. This is the moment you came here for, to hear from God and respond. Is there anything in your life right now that's hindering you from receiving the full love of Jesus Christ? That's one question for you to process. The second one, is there any place or relationship in your life right now where you're playing the villain because you feel unloved or unwanted? And then the last question I would prompt you with tonight to give serious consideration to and prayer. How will you personally and specifically respond to the fact tonight that you heard that Jesus through his scripture is saying to you, arise my love, my beautiful one and come away with me. Let's listen in together.